Heavenly Father, we come this morning as your people who are eager and hungry for your presence this morning. We pray that you will move among us as we worship together. And I pray that indeed our worship will continue to be pleasing to your ears. Father, we come together this morning and as we look back over the past week, we have all of us have seen your hand of mercy at work. Father, for many days we feared a great hurricane that would hit our southern coast and we were told that hundreds, possibly hundreds, would be killed from the strength of this hurricane and yet you calmed the storm and not one person was killed. We thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the refreshing rains from that storm that you brought us. And Lord, we reminisce over your greatness and your goodness and we are convinced and we are settled at heart that you indeed can do nothing but good. And you watch over us and you care for us. Father, we have sung this morning of refuge. We have sung this morning of grace. We have sung this morning of finding sustenance in the very person of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's him that we claim this morning as we bow ourselves before you. We claim nothing but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that after having been here this morning, we would be a people leave, would leave here encouraged and strengthened and determined to be greater witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray for the offering this morning that you would encourage your people to give. We thank you for their faithful giving and how the ministries of this church continue and the kingdom of God is expanded because of the people of Grace Evan. We pray, Father, that you may prosper them for that. Now, Father, finally, as we gather around this communion table, we commit that hour to you. And we pray, Father, that we would remember the great price that was paid for our redemption. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Actually, uh, I think it may be wrong. No, it's, it's, it's right. It's right in the bulletin, wrong on my notes. Hebrews chapter 10, excuse me. Hebrews chapter 10. We will look at a passage in chapter 9, but Hebrews 10 is where we'll begin this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. While you're getting there, I want to share some information with you. As you know, the past month and the month of September was, is, was Elder Nomination Month, and you have spoken and have nominated men for the office of eldership here at Grace Evan. We had four positions open for eldership, and you, the people of Grace, have nominated four men. Let me tell you who those men are. Uh, Mickey Hill, Randy Turner, Harry Stuber, and Jack DeWald. The four men that you as a congregation have nominated for the office of eldership. Now, we have four positions open, and you nominated four men, but we still have to have a congregational meeting, and elect these four men. And that will take place on Wednesday night, December the 4th. So keep that in mind. We, we really do value full participation in the election of elders. So just wanted to share that with you this morning. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, we begin this morning. And before I read the text, I will tell you that this sermon this morning will be a little bit different than what maybe you're used to me doing. I have no... Great stories to tell you today, no illustrations of wallpaper or Home Depot, nothing like that in the sermon. Uh, I've wanted to kind of change gears or shift a little bit this morning. And so I've decided to uh, speak in a way that will prepare us as we gather for 
the sacrament that we so love here at Grace of Anne. So just, uh, just a caution. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. I don't know how much you know about the book of Hebrews, but there is one unique factor about this book. You probably already know this. It is the only book in the New Testament of which we, the author is not identified. Uh, and there's been centuries of debate as to who wrote this great epistle. I think most have come to the conclusion it was probably the Apostle Paul, but that's not the debate that's important to our message this morning. There is another unique factor about this epistle, though, that, that I think uh, plays well to the message today, and that's this fact. Guys, Hebrews, Hebrews is a book that's only understood in light of the Old Testament. If we didn't have the Old Testament, the book of Hebrews would remain a mystery to us. The book of Hebrews is laden with terms and concepts that are rich in Old Testament history, particularly pertaining to the worship of Israel. In chapter 4 of Hebrews, there's the phrase, the beautiful phrase, the Sabbath rest. And we know from Old Testament history that the nation of Israel was encouraged to come to a, or to participate in a time of ceasing when men and William and women and Even the livestock were to cease from a time of labor so that the physical body could be renourished. We now know that this time of ceasing was a lesson to the nation of Israel to teach them or to point them to a far more significant need that men and women have. And that's the need to enter enter God's rest. That rest from spiritual striving when the hearts of men and women would find peace with God. And so the term Sabbath rest comes alive now for us with rich meaning because of the Old Testament. In chapter 5, there's uh, the phrase Christ as high priest. We know because after the order of Melchizedek that's mentioned in the book of Hebrews, that Christ was not to be the priest that's normally made priest in the, like in the Old Testament. He was not a priest based upon regulation and ancestry, but Christ would be a priest based upon the sovereign choice of God and based upon the power of the resurrection. So Christ comes to us as the high priest. Then in chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, it's mentioned several times the word covenant, a word that's dear to us here at Grace. It's a word that's rich with Old Testament meaning. And in the book of Hebrews, Jesus comes to us as the guarantee of The great are the better covenant. And then you have the phrase, which we read in our text this morning, which in my opinion is one of the most beautiful phrases in all the New Testament. It's the phrase found in verse 2, the phrase, once for all. Now, if you had been a Hebrew schooled in Old Testament scripture, this phrase would be alive with meaning to you. Is it possible that there could be a sacrifice 
once and for all. Then we find in verse 10, uh, in the same chapter, look down just a few verses. The phrase is mentioned again. You see it there, verse 10. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Hebrews 9 and 10. If we had time to really look at detail in these two chapters, we would eventually end up in the book of Exodus. Because what we have here in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10 is a parallel, a New Testament parallel to the events that are taking places in the book of Exodus, primarily Exodus 26, 27, and 28. Now, here's the setting as this story, the teachings of Hebrews plays out. Here's the parallel story in the book of Exodus. Moses has received the great covenant from God, which would become known as the Mosaic Covenant. And after the reception of that covenant, God has given Moses very specific instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. That, um, that building that would become the centerpiece of Hebrew worship. The book of Exodus tells us that the craftsmen involved in the construction of the tabernacle were to follow exactly the instructions that were given to them by Moses through, the Lord, uh, through God. Now, what we discover in the book of Exodus is that this entire project was to be a creative work of art. It would end up becoming a visual masterpiece. Exquisitely sewn fabrics, metal crafts, precious metals involved in the construction. We know that there was a, a one, at least one ton of gold involved in the construction of the tabernacle. Did you know that the lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant was a solid slab of gold? One ton of gold in its construction. Almost a ton of silver was used in the construction of the tabernacle. So the entire project was a combination of craftsmanship, skill, and artistry. If you look in Exodus 26, 27, and 28, you read those three chapters, you'll find the words skillful are skillfully used at least 20 times. These words indicate or describe the workmanship and the craftsmanship that was involved in this construction project. By the way, you know that Hebrew worship was designed by God to impact all five of our senses. Visually, we've already stated that it was a masterpiece. It would become the centerpiece of Hebrew life. Nothing compared in their life to the tabernacle at that particular time. Audibly, the musicians and the trumpeters would call the people to worship. And the smell, incense and smoke rising from the altar. The book of Exodus chapter 29 tells us that this smoke rising to the heavens would become a sweet aroma in the nostrils of God. And then there was the sense of touch. On that special day of sacrifices, the priest would take one goat, or two goats, or one goat would be slain and the blood would be drained from the goat and it would be used to offer to God as sacrifice. But the other goat was kept alive and the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat, symbolic of a transfer of the sins of the people to the goat that would become known as the scapegoat. And this goat was taken far out into the wilderness and released so far out that the goat could not find his way back to the camps of Israel. And so touch, the sense of touch played an important role in the worship of the people. And then, of course, there was taste. Very often the priest and the worshipers would taste the food that was offered to the Lord in sacrifice. 
Now, I've shared some of this information out of the book of Exodus to bring us to this question. Why, ladies and gentlemen, why so much detail? Why so much attention to beauty? Why so much attention to perfection? Well, I want to mention two reasons this morning. First, is because the tabernacle represented the abiding presence of God. Everywhere Israel settled, the tabernacle was to be erected in the middle of their camp. In the mornings and in the evenings, any time of the day, the Israelite would look to the tabernacle and he was reminded of God's covenant to the people. I will be your God and you will be my people. God says to his people in the book of Exodus that I will, I will dwell with you. It's translated literally, I will pitch my tent in your midst. So the tabernacle represented the abiding presence of God. Secondly, the tabernacle represented or spoke of God's mercy and his grace. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you, who would have ever dreamt of a God like this? Who would have ever dreamt of a God who is holy and faithful and just and true? A God who has every right to judge sin and evil. Who would have ever dreamt of a God like this who would enter into covenant relationship with a sinful people, knowing full well of their long history of failure and rebellion? Only this God. A God of mercy and grace. Now, if we go back to the book of Hebrews in chapters 9 and 10, where we took our text, we see that something happens in this setting that the writer of Hebrews alludes to. He's going back and looking to this particular period in Israel's history. And he comes to the day when the tabernacle is to be dedicated. The tabernacle has been completed. It's that great, we could say, the dedication Sunday. And in the book of Hebrews, we find a passage that where the, Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews mentions an event that doesn't really fit. It almost seems incongruous. It doesn't go in this particular setting. It's found in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21. Look back a few verses. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 21. In the same way, he, Moses, sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. Now, here's the setting. It's the day of completion. Dedication Sunday. Everybody's invited their extended family. Crowds uh, were pressing in and around the tabernacle. And undoubtedly Moses had invited all the public officials. Maybe the mayor was there and the, the building committees to be honored. All the elders are there. It's a very special Sunday. And by the way, of course, Moses, on this dedication Sunday, when the new sanctuary is dedicated, for sure Moses would preach his very best sermon. It would undoubtedly be Moses' finest day. And the text says that Moses comes to the pulpit and he stands before the people. And the first thing he does is splatter blood everywhere. He splatters blood on the, on the, uh, the curtains. He splatters blood on the altar. He comes to Aaron, who is the first high priest. And Aaron's adorned in this, his brand new robe with the breastplate of jewels. The twelve jewels representing the twelve tribes of Israel. And to Aaron's surprise, Moses splatters blood all over his new robe. And the people are aghast. What should be the final act of consecration looks like it's become an act of desecration. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, why? Why was everything splattered with blood? And why would the tabernacle take on a history of bloodletting? Well, there are two answers this morning I want to give you. One is theological. And the other is more practical, coming off of the theological. The theological answer is this. If the Hebrew learned anything in Old Testament life, he learned this. The life of the creature is in the blood. Leviticus 17. And so the writer of Hebrews would pick up that theme and he would write, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin, no remission of sins. So theologically, the answer lies in the Old Testament. Now practically, the reason is this. There are a couple of reasons. The tabernacle was a wash in blood to teach or to remind the people of the seriousness of sin. In fact, they would be taught that sin alienates them from God. Ladies and gentlemen, you do understand, don't you, that it's not just our sin, but it's the fact that we are sinners that makes us an enemy of God. Before we were in Christ, we stood as enemies of God. We were an offense to God, not just our sin, but we ourselves were an offense to God. Sin is a serious matter. In our popular culture today, there is, seems to be no serious concept of sin. Today, by and large, most people believe that man is good by nature, good, who occasionally does bad things. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches us that outside of Christ, we could not be in a worse condition in fact, Paul says in the book of Romans that ruin and misery mark the way of sinners. So sin is rooted in the hearts of humans. And the blood in the tabernacle was a constant reminder to the people of the seriousness of sin. I want to remind you too, as Christians this morning, it's dangerous even for us to minimize the seriousness of sin in our own lives. I don't think we take sin serious enough as Christians. Sometimes at the expense of grace, we let sins go unconfessed in our lives. There's another reason, another practical reason for the blood. It was this. Blood remained a visual lesson to teach Israel of the high cost of forgiveness. The high cost of forgiveness. For over 20 years now, I've been going down to the blood bank and faithfully giving blood. I don't know how many gallons of blood I've given over 20 plus years, but I I go. And uh, you know why I go? I don't go because I like their, you know, their gifts. I don't care for their Chippehoy cookies. I, I don't like bumper stickers on my cars. I've gone through a couple of their umbrellas. They don't last very long. I don't go for that. I go to Lifeblood because they have convinced me that I'm not a blood donor. They've convinced me that I'm giving the gift of life. Why else would they call it Lifeblood? I, I don't. You figure this out. I, I just, just in passing, a Friday I left, went out of town for a day, and I was coming back from Missouri and. 
trying to check my voicemail in my office late that afternoon to pick up my messages. And I, it just wouldn't work. I couldn't get in. And so the messages remained on my phone until I got here this morning. And so one of the first things I did was check my voicemail. There was only one. Guess who it was? <laughs> Lifeblood. <laughs> they called me Friday. I didn't. I planned this uh, weeks ago. They called me Friday. We have a serious need for O positive blood. Please come in this week, and I'll go. They've convinced me that I'm giving the gift of life. Now, in all these years that I've gone and given blood, I can't remember a time that I've gone in there and strapped myself to that table and pumped that little styrofoam thing in my hand and let them take my blood. I've never seen them splatter or spill blood anywhere. They've never splattered it on the wall. They've never ruined a shirt of mine. They've never butchered up my veins. They've never dropped a bag and it's never burst. It's a clean place, pristine place. And you think about it, the reason it is, who would want to go back if they had to slip and slide around in a bloody mess? Who would? And yet, gang, this is exactly the setting that Moses is relaying to us. We have a pristine sanitized view of Hebrew worship. And yet it was really a bloody mess. If you put the pencil to it, we're talking about a thousand years plus of these kinds of sacrifices. If you factor in when the tabernacle was dedicated all through the times of the, um, the temple, factor in a, you know, some seasons of captivity there, up to 70 A.D., we're talking a thousand years plus of sacrifices. Millions Millions of animals slain so that the sins of the people might be covered. They tell us that on peak seasons, peak times, when lots of animals were sacrificed, that a portable drainage system was erected in the tabernacle, or the temple eventually. And this drainage system would drain away the excess blood out of the temple area and it would flow down into the Kidron Valley. It was a bloody mess. And yet in verse 4, look back. Chapter 10, verse 4. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Ladies and gentlemen, the fact is, Israel and we today need more than simply a covering of sins. We need atonement. We need our sins taken away. When I consider this table and this sacrament that we so love here at Grace of Anne, I think it must be a sin when we take it for granted. I think it must be a sin when we approach this table in this hour of worship, apathetic or not serious. Guys, this is the centerpiece of Christian worship. And it reminds us of the extreme sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ paid on our behalf. While I was studying for this sermon, I read a story about a physician who had given his entire life to the medical practice out in the rural areas of the countryside. He had turned down many opportunities to practice medicine in the city, much more prosperous career and more comfortable lifestyle. He did it because he said he loved the people in the country. And after his death, he was remembered as a man who loved his profession, was a professional in in all the sense of the word. He loved the people and he was devoted to Jesus Christ. After this physician passed away, his books were opened and audited. And his family noticed that on numerous entries in his books, 
The words were written in red ink across the page. It was written, forgiven, unable to pay. Page after page. Debt forgiven, unable to pay. And his wife, who was of a different disposition, wanted to pursue these debts. So she filed suit in the proper courts so that the money could be collected. And when her case was finally heard, the judge had reviewed the notes. He called the widow to the, uh, to the, to the bench and he asked her, he said, Ma'am, are these the words? Is this the handwriting of your husband written on these pages in red? And she said, yes, judge, it is. And then the judge said, well, ma'am, not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus writes in bold crimson letters across our lives, forgiven. We are forgiven. Paul proposes this question. Who then, who can bring a charge against us? No one. For our sins have been covered. Our sins have been forgiven. I've decided this morning to say, to save a little bit at the end of our worship as we prepare to do this sacrament this morning and celebrate this wonderful uh, sacrament. I've decided to give us, give you an opportunity to worship just for a few minutes. And in just a few minutes, we're going to have words to come on the screen. I'm going to ask our worship team that led us a few minutes to go to come back to the stage and prepare to lead us in a time of worship. And before they do, I want you to look, or as they come, I want you to look at another passage. This was found uh, in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Now look, guys, as we... Prepare to close this morning. Listen to me. We may not know who the author of Hebrews was, but there's one thing for sure. He was a pastor. He was a preacher with flaming pastoral instincts. You see, the book of Hebrews is not just a book of great doctrine. It is that. But the book of Hebrews is also filled with strong admonition to the believer. The book of Hebrews is filled with strong calls to worship. Here's one. Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near and worship. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, a truthful heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's a couple of things about this verse I want you to see. He says we should draw near. We should not hesitate to draw near to the Father because the Father yearns for the worship of his people. The Father yearns for us to draw near. But it's not just the fact that we should draw near that I want you to see. Notice, we can draw near. We're able to draw near because we have full access to the Father. Our consciences can rest easy, for we have been granted the forgiveness of redemption. Now, one other thing. This worship that we're called to involves a sincere heart that's In full assurance of faith. A sincere heart in full assurance of faith. I think he was a pastor at heart. I think he knew what we would be facing as believers, even in this modern setting. We would come to the sanctuary Sunday after Sunday, distracted by the cares of this world. I think the writer of Hebrews understood that there would be this normal tension of living in this world, but not a part of it, a part of another kingdom. 
I think he knew that we would come often to this room and to this sacrament carrying burdens upon us. How did your week go this past week? Any surprises? Bad news on the health realm? How about your investments? Did you lose more this week? A bad news from the kids? Or a spouse? Ladies and gentlemen, whatever it is, don't leave those cares out there at the door. I suggest that we should bring them here to this table. And when we bring our cares here at this table, we are coming in full assurance of faith. Bring them. Bring them this morning to this table. Because when we do, we are admitting that our grace, our need for grace, did not end at regeneration. Our need for grace continues today. And we come this morning pleading future grace. I invite you to stand with us this morning. And they're going to put some words on the screens. And we're just going to sing just for a few minutes before we begin to take our, our, uh, the sacrament this morning. Now, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and stand. You may, not, uh, you may not need to sing. You may need to just offer up prayers of thanksgiving. Our prayers of repentance, whatever it might be. Maybe you should just pray. But if you want to, join us as we sing these songs of worship and we prepare our hearts for this sacrament.